0: The money. Here we go. Money talk. Here comes the money. Welcome to the Free Money Podcast, season two. Holy shit. It's the uh, Brooklyn Bay Area consensus about institutional investing and I guess coping. That's the theme
1: for season six, <laughs> <clone>. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Surviving how to survive quarantine. That's the theme.
0: Yeah, like, literally, I, I go into, like, Zoom therapy sessions and, ju- and have just screamed in every single one of them. Yeah. Um, I am <laughs> really sick of people taking phone calls
1: and turning them into Zooms. Like, mm. the, I have this new hierarchy of things I hate. I used to hate phone calls that were random. I wanted you to email me or text me. Mm. Preferable email. <laughs> And now people are like, dude, let's get a Zoom call. and Let's all stare at each other at eight in the morning instead of, you know, just sending each other an email. I feel like we're doing too much Zoom.
0: Yeah, it, it, it is a little bit overshooting, um, you know, but at the same time, like any social contact is pretty sweet. Well, there is that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and I do a lot of hanging out with my dog yep, and yep. children. And that's, Yeah.
0: I, I mean, am thank God for
1: roommates. Uh, I am eating a lot more celery. I st- I put a stick in every time I drink a buddy- bloody mary. Wow. Yeah, wow. so that's a couple like, of sticks a day just before this podcast. No, I'm just <laughs>
0: <laughs> You see me
1: eating yeah, celery, you'll
0: know what's going on. Well, You've got one of those like um those football like helmets <laughs> with the beer cans on the side but with bloodies.
1: Yeah. It is
0: amazing though.
1: Like just for the, the sake of the listeners. I mean we we were just talking before the show. I'm into my 60s in terms of days in quarantine. Sloan, you're in your 40s or 50s what did you say?
0: Uh, t- today's day 49 I tick off uh, you know every every passing day. <sighs> that's a long time you know, It's unreal It is it really and like we're in parts of the country where you know you kind of you're kind of short creature comforts and like long mm. proximity to other interesting things you know like I mean you know I live in a converted warehouse right? Um, yeah. Yeah. you know, and like, there's tons of light, thank God. But, you know, there's not, exa- we're, there's lots of like great nightlife around here. Usually yeah, that's why one would live here. Yeah. Um, you know, so the adjustment in New York city is just, is super, uh, stark for that reason. I think. I feel like New York, it,
1: I lived in New York for, I don't know, it was three or four years when I was younger. And it strikes me, it's, you have to get into elevators. Um, like so much of life is still not yep. so socially distanced. Um, I'm curious, like, yeah. First it, off, it, like, how uh, do you? I g- mean,
0: my sister. I think
1: we had a delay there.
0: Go for oh, it. Oh yeah, but yeah, my uh, my my sister like works managing construction sites, and like they were just sort of operating as normally uh, until very recently. Wow. But like, when you're in a building like this, how, like, how do you bring food
1: into the building? Like, um, what's, your, I what's your strategy? Down, I,
0: it's it's very like I drive down to Fairway once a week. And, uh, you know, I buy about a hundred bucks for the groceries All right, and, uh, and that's it.
1: <laughs> that's it. That's pretty, that's pretty legit. I feel like yeah. we're, we're in the like food delivery world where we're trying to get, mm. you know, that big behemoth company to find a delivery slot. <laughs> um, and I'm not going to give them a plug here, son. Okay. yeah, exactly. I, refu- yeah. I refuse.
0: <laughs> I mean, today it's a, they're the workers are striking, uh, at, at uh, oh, you know, are I they? Can give them a plug. It's Mayday, you know? Uh, yeah. So a lot of the gig economy workers at Instacart and Amazon and, um, Trader Joe's and stuff like that are on strike for better protective equipment and, um, combat pay and stuff like that right now,
1: man, that is hard. I mean, that's a tough job. They're just going out there and You know, keeping people alive. I mean, it's interesting how, uh, like the social distancing has been facilitated by this massive tech eruption over the last five years with like DoorDash, Amazon, Instacart, Zoom, like for a lot of people, at least here in Silicon Valley, I bet you life is pretty normal for a lot of people in like the service industries. Whereas in other parts yep. of the country, like where you have to like actually go build things, um, <laughs> you know, not just software, yep. it's yep. it's much more challenging. I mean, that's that's a huge generalization, but I'm trying to figure out why our death rates here are so low now um, as compared to some other places.
0: Well, I think that I mean y'all did a, Y'all took it seriously early on. Yeah. Um, I mean, like here, our, like our mayor clowned around for like a solid week about whether mm. or not to shut stuff down. Um, and we're still playing catch up, you know, for, for like literally about two and a half or three weeks. Anytime I turned off the Sopranos or whatever I was binging, Mm. you could just, you could hear a siren constantly.
1: Yeah. That's that emotional wear and tear that I think we've been spared, you know, like that constant sound in the background of people being very sick.
0: It's, it's just, I mean, and like I got COVID, I wasn't confirmed, but you know, I got COVID symptoms and it was the sickest I've been in years. I went Mm. from... You know, like I spent the whole winter skiing a ton um, and like I had skied 30,000 vertical feet a month before uh, and then like I get this COVID and standing up feels like, you know, I just sprinted up a flight of stairs. Dang. Uh, (laughs) Yeah.
1: Dang. Real live veteran of the COVID right here. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it's, I think that everyone in New York pretty much has had it whether or not they recognize this. that's this true. Point.
1: There's a bunch of the people with antibodies, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, um, I, I hope. Uh, so, what's going on with the stonk market,
1: Sloan? Why is the why are stocks so high right now?
0: <laughs> I mean, maybe they're actually high. Maybe like people are, <laughs> that legal pot is taking off. <laughs> you know, that's, for, that's, uh, that's the best explanation I've heard because
1: <laughs> you know, it's like we're back in October of, we're at the levels it was in October 2019. Now it's off a little bit today, but it, yes. off the highs, it's only 13 percent off the highs. You yeah. know, and it just seems totally irrational.
0: But I mean, yeah, I don't really advise like, you know, moving around your stocks all that much, but like selling stocks feels like kind of a no brainer here, you know, mm. like, because I mean, it, I, I just sort of, I feel like the, a lot of traders are sort of thinking like, okay, well, this resmedir drug is going to work 100% of the time. Mm. This pandemic is going to be over in 12 to 18 months. You know, it's going to be mostly business as usual this summer. Um, and like even a a small you know, change from that rosy forecast seems like it would be pretty bad news to a lot of people. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah. Seems like we're, you know, we're going to, we've been like on the upside. The markets have been going up because maybe the numbers around the COVID crisis weren't quite as bad. Like we're not at 2 million deaths. We're at (laughs)
0: 60,000 deaths. We only lost as many people as we did in the peak year of the AIDS crisis and the entire Vietnam War.
1: (laughs) I mean, uh, but like,
0: I, let, let's see if we can get like a better take because, like, we're not doctors, like you know. Yeah. Like the let's uh, let's call our. Uh, Should we do our, a phone our, a friend? Yeah, let's do our phone a friend. I mean, because because uh, your friend Ben apparently knows stuff about this, right? My
1: friend Ben. Uh, maybe we we'll, the first thing we'll ask him to do is introduce himself, but he is a pandemic modeler, and that's why we set him up to come on the come on the program today and tell us exactly how much bleach we should be drinking
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah and like do what we do mix your bleach with uh you know vodka or
1: or portable alpha ben hey how how are you we're great we're just calling uh this is this is ashby and sloan we're calling uh from the free money podcast
0: yeah, and we were wondering if you had any good uh, bleach cocktail recipes.
2: <laughs> uh, you know, experimenting uh, every day, getting uh, getting a little better. Um, ben, maybe
1: what we could do is have you give like one minute, uh, just for your background, i already given you some. Our listeners are just the smartest people in finance on the planet, and many of them are just inc- incredible Um incredible at generating alpha around different crises. And so we thought you could give a sense for what's going on. But before you do that, tell us who you are and where you're working.
2: Um, I am uh, first delighted to join you guys. Uh, I'm Ben Oppenheim. I work at Metabiota. Uh, Metabiota is an epidemic uh, risk analytic company. So we focus on modeling and monitoring and building data and analytic tools um, for this pandemic thing, which used to be a kind of quiet, um, scientifically interesting corner of the world that didn't get a lot of press and now um, it's everyone's life.
1: So um, apologies for that, <laughs> but delighted to, <laughs> to get to get it all through. Sloan, you had some questions. Let's hit them.
0: Yeah. So like, I mean, I guess going into this, you probably had like an idea of what it meant to be prepared for a pandemic. And I wonder like how that sort of changed seeing one actually unfold.
2: Yeah, um, no, it, it's kind of interesting when, uh, an abstract thing becomes, um, becomes kind of visceral reality. Um, so I, I think like one thing this event shows us really powerfully is that pandemics are not a health system event. Um, oftentimes people think about them, uh, just from a preparedness standpoint in terms of, you know, hospital beds and masks and gowns. And those are absolutely appropriate, important, critical things. Um, but it's, it's a, when these events hit, they engulf the whole of society. So preparedness means everything from, you know, uh preparedness um within educational institutions to re- restructure the way schooling works um of course logistics supply chains airports uh, like every kind of every um bit of um bit of the fabric of society gets stressed by these events um and so we've thought for a long time that that's that's the right way to think about preparedness we built some uh, preparedness metrics that have that kind of whole society framework um one thing that i you know kind of have been thinking about but didn't pay quite enough attention to is, um, really like societal preparedness and science literacy. Um, it's obviously mm-hmm. an important issue. Um, we've seen its importance in, you know, um, declining immunization rates for measles and other diseases, which are horrific. Like if only people knew and uh, could get their act together to really uh, make sure their their kids got vaccinated. Um, so, you know, we, we've seen already some of the, um, the potential perils when, Um, citizens lose sight of of the importance of the tools we've already got in hand. Uh, And we're seeing that now in this event, too. So um, that's an dimension of preparedness that I think, you know, this country and others will need to get on top of uh, in a big way uh, when the dust settles on
0: this event. Yeah, from your lips to God's ears. Uh, But like, so, you know, the the next thing is like kind of, you know, if you think about like the projections that... um, you know, we, we've been hearing for, like, when this whole thing will be resolved. They seem to kind of revolve around a pretty rosy forecast for when we're going to get a vaccine for the coronavirus, right? Like, the president keeps saying 12 to 18 months. Um, And, you know, I don't think we have an HIV vaccine yet that's been more than 12 to 18 months. Uh Like, what sort of error bars do you see around that forecast?
2: Big. Big. Um, so you know 12 to 18 is this um, it, it, it could be the way this shakes out I hope so um, I'll, I'll you know do it take as much bleach as I need to take if that's what makes it happen but uh, <laughs> no, I think uh, the, the thing is like 18 months is contingent on everything kind of breaking in our direction right like you know good luck with vaccine candidates um, and then you know hustling a vaccine through um, through clinical trials and the kind of cool irony of this event is that, you know, this is our third coronavirus um emergence event, you know, epidemic of the 21st century. We had SARS, we had MERS, we had this. And um so the kind of the, the good news is that while well, we, we have some you know some candidates for these other coronavirus strains um already kind of you know in testing and those might provide um a scaffolding to work from. Uh, there's now an Oxford candidate that's evidently looking promising. I haven't seen the data. Um the kind of gut-wrenching um, dark cloud aspect of this is that you know we—it's not like this wasn't on our radar. Like we could have been investing in um, building a serious mm-hmm. vaccine pipeline for these diseases. Um, it's at the top of the watch list, the viral watch list. Um, so yes. what the hell are we doing? I mean, plenty of like good scientists working on this, but um, policymakers are totally asleep at the wheel. So I think you know, 12-18 months is a nice thing for them to say. I hope it's true. Um, I'm not planning on it personally. <sighs>
1: Ben, at one point, you told me there was a kind of a probability every year that this type of of an event was happen, and it was it, it it wasn't huge, but it's surprisingly big. And when you deal with the kind of investors that we're focused on, which are kind of like you know pension funds, sovereign funds taking fifty seventy five year horizons, you know anything above you know quarter percent, half a percent a year becomes pretty meaningful. What is that percent that we could you know we should have been modeling? <laughs> yeah, uh, of
2: of course, I don't have this memorized. I should. It keep, the number keeps changing as, as the death <laughs> oh. up. Um, so that's, you know, the way we think about modeling this is kind of out of the natural um, cat framework where you, we look at um, the kind of epidemiologic version of a 100 year flood or a 200 year flood. Um, so, what's, what's the probability of an event kind of at this severity or worse? And the severity keeps getting worse, so the number keeps changing. Um, the I guess the thing I would say is that these events are they are vastly more likely to occur than people really appreciate. And if you think about so my my great aunt just turned 101. She was born you know right after the 1918 flu um, kind of crested. That is you know the high water mark for um, misery and suffering uh, epidemiologically, like the worst human mortality event um, from a natural catastrophe I, I believe in history and. We've had, you know, several flu pandemics since then and, you know, multiple coronavirus epidemics and now a pandemic. And, um, we just, you know, there's, there's this World Bank, um, piece on pandemics titled from panic to neglect. And it's, it, the argument it makes is that as soon as these events are in the rearview mirror, we just forget. Um, so, um, I, I think the re, the, the important thing for, you know, investors who are thinking long term to bear in mind is that we have this bias. Um, mm. but science and viruses don't <laughs> and uh, and they emerge periodically and you know this will this will certainly not be the last and it won't be the worst
1: amen i mean the i think the reason i'm so interested in that question from like a higher level of how do we help big investors manage these types of um exogenous you know impacts to their portfolio is it's similar to other things like climate change you know like we can look at the probabilities we can look at like you know, the past and make predictions about the implications, the hazards to the global economy and begin to run scenarios. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm so focused on is how do we help investors change their decision making so that they can have resilient portfolios? And that's really, Sloan, for your benefit, where Ben and I have been kind of riffing going back before the COVID thing really took off. Where we were, you know, just starting to talk about, hey, how could we integrate some of these scenarios and signals into the decision making of investors that have horizons over which we know more pandemics are coming? You know, even the Zika thing, it may have been a blip, but think if you were in the tourism industry, you know, that was a huge hit.
0: Yeah. And like, I I mean, it's it seems like, you know, you can there was a uh, TED talk that Bill Gates did like, you know, six or seven years ago where he was just like a flu like pandemic taking off is uh, a virtual certainty over on a long enough horizon. Um, but like I, I wonder, Ben, like, you know, I I had COVID like symptoms about a month ago um, and, you know, I had a very kind of mild case, but was never tested and I'm not counted in any statistics. Um you know, I wonder, like, I assume that that makes your job kind of hard because, like, if you're trying to actually figure out what's going on and, you know, what kind of course these things are taking and there's all these uh, data blindnesses, like, how do you get around that?
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the data are um, are, the, are, the critical, are the critical thing for sure. Um, you know, COVID is a sort of interesting one because we know there's this massive underreporting and um, for all kinds of reasons, right? Not enough tests and then in some countries, not enough political will. Uh, to pull it together to uh, to report what's going uh, what's going on, um, we have you know tremendous uncertainty about the death rate. But if you make some assumptions mm-hmm. about the death rate based on countries where there is lots of good reporting, you can kind of back out um, an yeah. estimated caseload from that because the deaths are a little bit more obvious. Um, you know, it won't necessarily be the case when we get into flu season. Um, we're just coming out of it here. We kind of dodged that bullet, but. Um, You know, where, where differential diagnosis is possible, um, you know, you, you can, you can take a stab at it. So from a, you know, from a modeling standpoint, one of the problems we've got is that, you know, the historical record is, is sparse and, um, and we're missing lots of outbreaks. I mean, now the scientific literature suggests that there's like a lot more Ebola, um, uh, activity than, you know, than we previously understood, you know, potentially like multiple small events per year, single infections or clusters potentially occurring. We don't know because reporting is sparse. Um, so, you know, we have to make assumptions and we have to, you know, work from what is biologically and social, sociologically plausible to build models that we do, but, um, but you know, we think it's feasible and important. Um, work to carry forward so yeah you know, i'm, I'm ha- i will happily spam you or any listener with papers on this topic um, <laughs> just, just, just uh, send, send me some bleach, we'll make it a deal
0: oh yeah no problem uh we can send you our proprietary portable alpha formula that uh you know
1: <laughs> oh yeah i'll have to explain that to you later but <laughs> <laughs> I'm, in, uh, I'm intrigued i'm intrigued oh yeah hey i'm gonna do one more question then sloan's gonna do one more so my question is is markets um, I'm fond of the classic Keynes uh, quote, which is uh, markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay sane, caring for children and doing your job at the same time or something <laughs> like that. I don't know what he, it was, something like that. My brain <laughs> was that all right. uh, but, But like, look, I mean, we're only 13% or something off the highs, which were the highest highs in the history of stock markets. You know, if you're looking at, your models and thinking about—I'm not asking you to make economic predictions or even, you know, uh, recommendations to buy or sell. But you know, if you're looking at these these markets, thinking this is one of the greatest months we've had. April was one of the greatest months we've had in 20 years in terms of stock markets. That's a fact. Now that April's over, uh, is this irrational? Is Keynes, you know? Is Keynes right that this irrationality can go on for a long time until we're no longer solvent? Or, um, you know, what what is your thinking? If you have a thought about the markets, and I know I'm asking you questions I didn't tell you I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Those are always really good ones. <laughs> I think um,
2: K- K- Keynes is always right, right? I feel like, um, or mostly often right. Um, I think that um, the market. There so are doing something right and something wrong. The thing they've probably got right is that some companies are gonna come out of this uh tremendously strengthened. Like there's some companies whose business models, you know, just do really well in a world where people are um, you know, not moving around a lot and need things delivered and um and so in in some sense, um some really big strong players like uh, Amazon will continue to get stronger, um, at the expense of, you know, probably it's the kind of main street economy. And I'm I'm not saying anything terribly interesting when I say that, but it, it seems like it's it's definitely the case. Um, yeah, but I think the markets probably don't fully appreciate the fact that I mean, they're kind of like looking for any good news, and the fact that the Treasury seems willing to, you know, pump and fed to just like dump liquidity uh, into the market makes them feel good. We're going to be doing this you know, potentially for the next year or more, um, and the kind of net effect of the like marathon of COVID misery, um, joblessness. Um, you know reluctance to be in social spaces like the amount of sand in the gears of the economy that that's going to produce i think will um really start to punish companies over the medium term um and so my own kind of thinking is that the market is like way frothily uh, exuberant uh, mm-hmm. way too frothily exuberant given the real reality that's hitting people um it's going to take some time for it to settle in um but when it does it's going to hurt and mm-hmm. um you know, it would be nice if that weren't true, but the this doesn't seem like a V-shaped event to me at all. It's like an L-shaped event, <laughs> if anything.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, and like I mean, I guess one potential catalyst for that. I mean, you know, here in New York, case counts are leveling out. Um, you know, we just sent the you know USS Comfort back to back to base. You know, so we don't need that big hospital ship that was hanging around for a little while. But twenty-one out of fifty states still have growing case count numbers. Um, and those tend to be like here in New York, we have arguably the best he- healthcare system in the world. Um, you know, like bar none, um, the Upper East Side is just one giant hospital. Um, but the, you know, like tw- the, of the 21 to 50 States, you know, they're old, they have older populations, worse, worse, healthcare systems and worse pre-existing health. Like, and they, they're signaling that they won't really collaborate with each other. Um, have you seen any estimates of what that lack of cooperation could cost um you
2: know we're we're generating some we're not we're not done yet so i unfortunately can't throw you numbers but i can say that I, I think that that's like a a time bomb waiting to go off right um, some of those states have as you say like older older populations a lot of pre-existing conditions worse health systems more more inequality um a whole lot of structural barriers people getting the care they need um it's potentially a nightmare. And if they're not kind of cooperating, if they're not implementing social distancing measures in a serious way, they're going to get hit really hard. Um, so I think, you know, there's the human and the kind of human dimension of that, which is just a lot of suffering, which we could avert. And then there will be the economic uh, consequences in terms of joblessness. Um, these are places that many of them were states where the economy wasn't great in the first place. So yeah, um, So I worry a lot about that. But I think the other issue for New York and for California, where I live, and a lot of other places that we can be successful in round one, but until we've got a vaccine or you know really good therapeutics um, or herd immunity, this thing can come roaring back in a hurry. And we've seen that in a couple of countries already that were initially successful that you know you kind of like take your foot off the brakes by relaxing social distancing or um, other measures. And unless you've got incredibly acute uh, biosurveillance, public health surveillance, um, you could be in a world of pain really quickly. So you know, my worry personally is like not wave one, but wave two, and then so there's again like the health dimension of that, but also the economic dimension. Like just when we get used to kind of coming out of doors from social distancing, you know, in the fall this thing's be back, and as a society and you know as an economy, I don't think we're remotely prepared for that kind of uh, that kind of endurance race. So, so depressing. Wow. Let me give you good news. No. Um, me, the, the, the good that was Lower, like man. the biggest joy kill interview ever. Um, so the, the, so the, the good news is that you know, like, we will get through this. Like, my, you know, yeah. we all had ancestors who lived through 1918. Like, that was yeah. a was a nasty virus, and they made it. And people live in you know, really desperate circumstances, and they, they make it through events like this. We're going to make it. Um, the question I'm asking myself is like, how do we build? And my friends in the climate community, like, you, you guys, like, you, you're on this issue. Um, how do we harness attention in a productive way to build a better tomorrow? Like, this mm-hmm. event should be a wake-up call that, like, these this this kind of virus is coming for us. It's going to come for us again, something like this in the future. How do we pull our shit together so that yeah. we are remotely prepared for next time? Um, I hope that's the conversation we're having in 2022 um, over uh, a nice round of not bleach cocktail. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll see you there.
0: Yeah, I mean we'll we'll Don't drink be bleach. talking about how to deal with the uh the threat of Godzilla or whatever that whatever happens next year it's gonna it's gonna be worse. Ben on that note, thank you so much for, for joining <laughs> thank you.
1: for joining and taking a bit of time with us. That was really enlightening.
0: And and for giving us the good news at the end to cheer, to to cheer us all up.
2: The least I could do, uh, stay safe, <laughs> safe and healthy out there and uh I'll see you guys around.
0: Thank you. Bye. Bye. The uh oh, man. <sighs>
1: That was awesome. I love um, just, if you just permit me like, you know, a 90 second, a 90 second riff here, the, Go for it. the The harnessing the moment to, to to build a new tomorrow. To me, that's like, um, that's what we do with crises in like the pension world. These organizations are, are so bad at innovating that it takes these mega crises to build new ways of investing. So, like in 2001, 2003, when the internet bubble burst, um, the pension funds all had this realization, which seems totally obvious to every, you know, sentient being that they should think about their liabilities when they invest their assets. Um, but prior to that, they didn't, you know, they they didn't think about the destination on their map when they set out, right? They just were like, oh, Chicago tells me that markets are efficient and here's, a 60-40 portfolio and off we go. Um, and, and so coming out of 2003, we ended up with something called liability-driven investing, which has now taken off and every single asset management firm will, will have that type of a product. The GFC, we had this massive crisis. Again, all the pension funds were like, oh my gosh, we thought we had diversification because we had different product names. But it turns out that you need diversification across risks which again is a quite a simple concept. Like Clearly there are different risks in the economy and those risks will affect products differently. But in the GFC, the pension funds had all these products, but the, they all went the same direction. And so there was correlation across all of them. And coming out, we had risk factor-based asset allocation and a whole bunch of other innovations around how we manage risk. This crisis will do something. Um, in my mind, I think, you know, if I had to bet, I'd say this is the crisis that makes ESG, um, not only commercial, but like highly relevant. That if you're a long-term investor taking a 50-year view, you have to see ESG as an indication of future risk. Um, these may be tail risks, but like they clearly can be pertinent. And so, you know, if, if 2001 was, LDI in 2008 was uh factor-based asset allocations. I think this next one is integration of ESG. And that'd be awesome for the world if that actually came to pass.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, you know, the another weird side effect of this too might be like, you know, so the, the global financial crisis was one of these weird crises where some rich people lost it all. Right. Yeah. But if you, you know, were we're not, you know, kind of totally screwed, you have a stable income or whatever, you could still continue living a pretty solid life, right? Yeah. This is the first crisis that we've had, maybe since the Great Depression, where we're actually all in it together, right? Like there, There is no party that you can go to, no matter how much money you have. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you can hang out by yourself on your yacht in the Caribbean or something. Yeah. Um, Do you know what's funny?
1: Our last podcast, this... We my son pulled it up uh, today because we were I was saying we were going to do this, and Henry was like, "When am I going to be on the podcast?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, uh, next week." Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we'll give, we'll give him something to talk about. It'll be hilarious, but um, he's a nine year old, by the way, for everybody and and so he he pulled it up, and we were talking about um the the blackouts.
0: Yeah. Cal- so,
1: like, here in California, this is the second totally weird event in the last 12 months. We had four That's days of no point. power. You know, <laughs> like the the whole coast here was like completely blacked out because of forest fire risk, another yeah. environmental risk. And yep. so, you know, we'll look back on this 50 years from now and be like, that was nuts, or that was the beginning of the bullshit you know hopefully that was nuts is where it goes but yeah it it feels like we keep stacking up these like really bizarre things
0: well yeah and i mean for like in the lead up to this crisis i was working on this like big paper on esg uh as like a conference proceedings thing that of course now like lands with a thud right like (laughs) (laughs) um you know but uh like all of the pandemic to your esg and p esg and p well, what was so weird about it actually is like a lot of the consensus forecasts for what uh higher climate means, like you'll see people going like there will be a greater risk of pandemics will be more oh, yeah. susceptible to, you know, it's like a born illness talking point, um, you yeah. know, it, it, inside of it. And, you know, OK, so we've gotten that part. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. And yeah, I mean, I, and, uh, ugh, ugh. Fascinating. Right, that's fascinating. That's that's enough of us being miserable. (laughs) Uh, What's up? What's next on the agenda? That's a new dear Ashby (laughs) horn. I love it. Uh, I
1: I much appreciate that one. That's light and you know just raises my my um, my soul a little bit. You know, feels good.
0: Yeah, we've. We've still got the rap air horn hanging around for for, <laughs> okay. for, for for some point later. But, you know, the uh, but so dear Ashby, dear listener okay. is uh, the portion where uh, we ask uh, the one and only Dr. Ashby Monk the questions that you have written into us with. Um, and by writing into us, you have either slid into one of our DMs on Twitter or emailed uh, free money pod at Gmail dot com. And, uh, you know, ask the question. Um, and if it was good, and sometimes even if it isn't, um, we'll ask them in a segment. Um, so, so the first one, uh, I have is if states do wind up declaring bankruptcy due to the coronavirus, what would happen to state pensions? Oh, that was a great question. So this, uh, question,
1: when I saw you, um, that kind of took me back to my PhD, which was such a, I had a flashback. Um you know, my PhD was on how pension obligations were managed by corporations that were, you know, we used to call them legacy costs. So corporations that were large manufacturing firms, you know, in the rust belt, you know, steel man- manufacturing, um, things like that, how those companies manage their defined benefit pension plans. And in, in many cases it was bankruptcy. Mm.
0: Um,
1: Going back to 1976, we set up this uh, organization in the US called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation to like facilitate a bankruptcy of a company with a pension to ensure that the pension still got played, paid. And there's been about 140 or so thousand companies that have been managed through that termination process at the PBGC. So this notion that bankruptcy is a means of changing the pension promise is not lost on the politicians in DC who floated mm. this as a way of dealing with these insane um, benefit and entitlement costs. You know, I think yep. it was Mitch McConnell who was like, we're going to go, we're going to let them go bankrupt. Cocaine, something. Mitch, Co- yes. cocaine, uh, <laughs> Moscow, Mitch, as I, you call him cocaine, <laughs> I call him Moscow. Um, and, and so, you know, it's not, we're all looking at the states right now, wondering what the hell are we going to do with these uh, liabilities? I mean, uh, I think it was, uh, we just saw a report in PNI pensions and investments yesterday that said pension liabilities are the, the unfunding level underfunding level of pension liabilities is the worst. It's been in 30 years. And, and we've been trying to put these plans on a better trajectory over the last 10 years. And so the fact that we're back in the worst case is really troubling. And and like I think we've said before in the podcast, the only way that you can um, solve this from being a massive um, political and economic crisis and social crisis for the people who are going to rely on the pensions is contribute more money to the plans, get higher investment performance, or cut benefits. And so what you're seeing is – People thinking, well, gosh, this crisis has gotten so bad. Maybe this is an opportunity to push some states into a bankruptcy and then Mm. potentially renegotiate these pension promises as we have done with all these companies that went bankrupt that had these kind of cradle to the grave, what we used to call Cadillac pension plans. Um, But the problem is states aren't companies. As best I know, they don't go bankrupt. They just default. And yep. so it's, it's not the same like legal code as far as I know. Um, yeah. you know, I, 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 would need to like dig into it a little bit more to understand what is the pro you know, the process, but there's a process for companies in going bankrupt. And that's partly what the PBGC was set up to manage that termination process of a pension plan as part of the legal proceeding of bankruptcy mm. and, and the PBGC today, just for people's curiosity, um, they don't pay the full benefit. You know, that's, that's partly why you're seeing some of the writer wing folks in Congress thinking this is a good option. You know, I can remember when the Delta pilots, um, lost their pensions to the PBGC, many of them saw their pension go from, you know, 120 K a year till they die down to $42,000, $43,000 a year till they die. That's wow. Like, you know, if, if you had bought a house in Florida, I don't know what you did, right? But yeah, you're screwed. You're, you, you can't afford it anymore. And so that yeah. was a huge issue for a lot of pilots who had, you know, you could call that like a ridiculously big pension, but like that was the deal they operated under and probably, mm. you know, flew 18-hour shifts and all this stuff thinking, all right, this is my deal. Yeah. And then the deal changes. And, and so that's what's going... That's why you're seeing a lot of the talk about state bankruptcy as a means of renegotiating. I think that's what's going on there.
0: Yeah. And and I guess, I I mean, I I wrote something about the PBGC like two-ish years ago, and it was already coming near to like a funding problem. Yeah. Uh, Like there's something, (laughs) you know, before there was a crisis, right? We were already running pretty close to the red line.
1: Well, there's a moral Uh, hazard, right? Yeah, exactly. And and that's an insurance concept where the people who need the insurance really need the insurance, and so it, they're going to use the insurance. And so there's no premium you can charge the people who really need it that covers yep. the cost, yep. it, especially what it means you start increasing the premium. And then the people who stay in the program are the people who <laughs> really need it, you know? Yep. yep. So it's this uh. vicious cycle. And, and that's what we were seeing with the PBGC. And so – this has really led to the demise of the corporate pension plan, right? Because those insurance premiums make it very expensive. Um, you know, and so now we're stuck with defined contribution pension plans everywhere, which is basically saying to all of you out there listening, deal with your own retirement. We're not yep. going to, we're not going to help you. And oh, by the way, there is no PPGC for defined contribution pension
0: plans. You're on your own. Yep. Yeah, you should have made better investments if you lost money. I mean, yeah, basically. You know. Like, why aren't you listening to that podcast with Slaughter Nashby, right? Yeah, like why why aren't you paying three thousand dollars a year for my investment newsletter? And our uh, portable alpha <laughs> <I'll> <laughs> yes, <have> to- <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> now with bleach. Uh, yeah, that you know, it's it's <laughs> with extra bleach. All right. Uh, next, <laughs> next, next <one. laughs> question. Uh, what have you started doing during lockdown that you plan to continue when if life returns to normal? two things pushups
1: and gardening and i will continue to do those things pushups like, pushups i know i was never to push in fact my kids um little recently were kind of telling me that i was have you seen that movie captain america slum oh yeah steve rogers mm-hmm. so my kids were like dad you're like captain america before he wow. had before he had that crazy treatment. <laughs> oh
0: gosh gotcha. i was like wow that's uh they don't they to I know. know you very well when they started <laughs> telling, me, telling me what
1: they thought i was like i was like oh yeah go on and then i was like oh <laughs> before the truth <treatment, laughs> that made him oh. a superstar and so when i heard that i was the steve rogers pre-treatment i was like screw this you know quarantine is like jail you just hang out <laughs> nowhere you can pump yeah. iron And so, I started doing push-ups. And so, when my first session, I could do like seven. And last Saturday, I did 37 in a row. Whoa! I know. So, that's a big thing. Uh, And then the other thing for me is gardening. My mom and dad are huge gardeners. And I always was like, who's got time to garden? But I have, you know, we live on a hill in Los Gatos. So, we're kind of up away from um, town, which means we have a little bit more space than the average bay area person uh and and i've been planting fruit trees i've planted 15 fruit trees so i'm ready to live off the land uh when this never you know when the vaccine never comes we'll just be picking pomegranates and and bees because those are the drought resistant trees that we planted (laughs) 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 because i didn't trust myself to actually water the trees (laughs) Mm,
0: yeah that's why i mean like I, we, I've been doing very much the same thing. I've got uh, about 15, um, to, like, pineapple tomato plants um, that I've been growing. Oh, wow. Seed. Cool. Um, and, yeah, they, they grow these, like, the individual tomatoes that they grow are larger than one pound. Uh, that, so they, like, literally are the size of a pineapple. That is um,
1: amazing. You could so I, I, I could have, imagine, like, slicing those and getting them on a grill or something.
0: Yeah, exactly, like a steak, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I'm going to take those. It's, tomatoes actually grow really well upside down. Hmm. Um, so I'm going to take. You can make like a bucket, cut a hole in the bottom of it, and put the thing through it. Um, that's awesome. And I'm going to turn those into my curtains. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I also I also have a bunch of jalapenos growing. So it's I do too.
1: Like, I grew, I've got yeah. jalapenos growing. The craziest thing on earth, which I encourage you to try, if you have a garlic in your fridge that's like a little mm-hmm. bit old, shove it in dirt. Yep. And like four days from now, you'll have like this giant stock growing out of the ground. Hell yeah. My kids and I have been like literally just taking seeds out of stuff we eat and shoving it in the ground. Yep. And we found an old pumpkin, I don't know, beginning of quarantine that like had been lurking around the house since November. <laughs> <laughs> It was not all you – know, it was a small one, so it, it kept its Sounds form. Sounds pretty gross. Yeah, I know. It kept its form. <laughs> Don't picture like a jack-o'-lantern or something. <laughs> and uh, we planted a bunch of pumpkin seeds and like – I think we're growing like 18 pumpkin plants now. I'm I'm going to like open yeah. up a pumpkin patch for the neighbors. If we're, if I mean, we're, hey,
0: it's like, we're, we're getting back into these like good old fashioned folksy habits that our forebears used to, you know, yeah. of, and I know?
1: will do that. I will keep doing this post quarantine. It's, it's a, yeah. it's meaningful. Like you, it just feels good.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, like I've got another like 10 or 15 plants that I didn't really talk about growing right. Awesome. Now that just make me feel super happy. Um, all right. The last question, all right, um, hey. th- this is a, uh, The politics one, so to speak. So because of the pandemic, lots Mm. of Americans are making more in unemployment benefits than they typically make in income. Um, like the Wall Street Journal did a piece where like they, they looked at like the state level, like median incomes. Um, and you know, the, the monthly unemployment benefit plus the $600 for like more than half of the state pop, I think it was like 22, 25 states, um, where that combination was much, was like substantially more like, Seventy percent more than the median income. Yeah, you know, and and so how should we be, how should we be thinking about it? Like, I how mean, should we think the, about it? Because yeah. I guess the, the journals reporting kind of had the unstated premise that it's bad.
1: Well, I mean, uh, let's let's <laughs> let's let's think about it. Like, um, there's a couple of components here. The first component is it's it's clearly a disincentive to go out and find a new job if you're making more money without having a absolutely job. okay. Absolutely. So. So, like, we can all agree that like if you're making a bunch more money not having a job, you're gonna be like, I don't want a job until that goes away. So as a dynamic for like encouraging economic growth, no. Like I imagine that the people who designed this weren't thinking this is gonna be a huge catalyst for economic growth. They might have been thinking this will lead to spending, which will lead to you know more job creation or something. But 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 actually the way I think about it is like. Earning more in unemployment is a very powerful incentive to fucking sit at home and respect the shelter-in-place order that we need to flatten and ultimately crush the curve. Stay home, smoke weed, and do not go out and try to find a job. You know, we heard Ben. We're already – you know, he's like, this is going to keep coming. We don't want to take the foot off the accelerator or brake or whichever one we're doing. Shiver analogy. But like as of this podcast, I think we're near sixty-five thousand dead. Yep. Uh yeah. The latest predictions are that we're gonna go past a hundred thousand. You know, if we take the foot off the brakes, does that go out to a quarter million? You know, like there it's not that long ago that even our president, who you know, is a bit of a interesting character, uh, said we could have two million people dead. <laughs> you know, 2 million Americans dead. Okay. So if we have an incentive that actually pushes people to stay home and avoid that worst outcome, awesome. And when we get through this period and we need to get people back to work, well, maybe there's a way for us to do the, you know, the welfare to work type programs we saw under Clinton and get people incentivized to get back to work. But I'm not, you know, I, I don't agree with the wall street journals take that this is all bad.
0: Yeah. And like, I, I kind of, you know, it makes me think of the Star Trek economy a little bit. Like one of the, one of the things I've been doing to stay sane is watching a lot of Trek, right? Awesome. Which I, I had, I had never really hung out with, um, you know, beforehand. And now I've seen all of it. No long, way. Like, all of the series, not all of the episodes, but all of the series. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's one episode in like Star Trek, uh, The Next Generation where they, uh, catch like a 1980s stockbroker who had frozen himself. Um, you know, like cryogenically, because he had some illness. Oh my gosh. Um, like, it's amazing. Know, he ejected himself into space. Um, and you know, they, his illness is now easy to cure. They, they cure it. They wake him up and he's like, I gotta call my broker. You know, like, get me on the phone. <laughs> I gotta figure out how much money I have. You know, Captain Picard, you don't understand. I'm very wealthy. And, you know, <laughs> and, and Picard is like, you don't understand. Like the, the, what you're talking about wealth is literally meaningless to me. <laughs> like that's gone as a concept. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, we don't do that. Like, the idea of accumulating possessions for their own sake is just dead. <laughs> you uh, know, like, as is the idea of starving because you don't have work. Oh, fascinating. Uh, okay, you know. So, like, I, I think it's it's really you know that's the kind of policy that if Barack Obama had put it into place you know, you would have like, you know, people in those three-sided hats, like camping out in front of the capitals, you know, yeah. in, in even stupider ways than you currently have. Yeah. Um, but because it's being, you know, it's a, essentially like we've adopted socialism and the people who did it were the Republicans. I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, which is like, I, I mean, I think that's a cool. I know.
1: Eminent domain, black <laughs> of, you <laughs> yeah. know, using the defense powers act. Uh, yep. Um, Stay at home orders, taking your freedom. $4 trillion uh, of money printing. Yeah. Printing money. You know, it's like the right wing has turned
0: into the left wing, but you know, life is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just gotta, that's the only way to express yourself these days. Oh,
1: I just am so glad season two is going again. And here we go. Oh my God. Know? Yeah. So exactly. much fun stuff to talk about for the next 12 episodes. Yeah, <laughs> Henry, Henry was like, "How many episodes do you guys do a season?" I was like, "We're di- we barely realized we're in seasons. We just <laughs>
0: we just took a long break." Well, I mean, if there's you know if uh, coronavirus shuts down ski season next year, we might just be able to keep going. Keep going. Like yeah. <laughs> well, uh, thank you. Stay safe. Thank you, and thank you all for listening. Um, we love you very much, and uh, tune in for the next one. Bye. I'm looking at-